This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Open your Bibles to James 3. We started a series on James, it seems like a really long time ago, like it was last year, because it was. And then we took a break and covered some other material at the end of the year, and now we're getting to get back to James, uh, which is exciting. This is the 10th message in a series on James. We're just working our way verse by verse through the Bible. So we'll read the passage and talk about each section of it, and then try to apply it. So that's kind of our methodology here, to just uh, open up what does the Bible say, and try to understand that, and then uh, ask the Lord to apply it to our lives. But before we jump into this passage, I'd like to just give a little bit of the background for what have we covered so far, and, and kind of more importantly, what is the purpose of the book of James? God's concern for his people in the book of James is this, that his people have a living faith, an authentic faith, a real faith. And by that, the the burden of the book is that those who say they believe in Christ, who have trusted Christ, who are Christians, would be demonstrating a changed life. That faith would work itself out in demonstrable ways in our lives. He starts in chapter 1 and verse 18 saying, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. And by that, that brought us forth is birth language. He's saying that we were given new birth, new life. We were brought forth into the Christian life through the word. That is this right here, what's sitting in your lap or what I'm holding up here, the scripture, the Bible. So the truth of the Bible came to us, told us our need for a Savior, Jesus Christ, and then God gave us new life through that word. And then he spends really the rest of the, the letter, James does, talking about what it means to apply the scripture to our lives and how that is really an evidence of real faith. So for instance, right after that passage, he talks about being a hearer and a doer of the word. So the process is you become a Christian by hearing the Scripture which proclaims Jesus as the one who died and was resurrected for sinners. You believe that, and then you're a Christian, and then as a Christian you grow by hearing God's Word and applying God's Word to your life, being a hearer and a doer. Because James says if you're a hearer and not a doer, if you're a hearer only, then you deceive yourself, is what he says. And so that's his great concern, is that we not be hearers only, but that we really apply God's Scripture. He, he says, as a matter of fact, in chapter 2, that it's not just enough to say, I believe in God. I believe God is one. Or we could even say, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He says, you know what? Even demons believe. It's a startling statement. Even demons believe. He's saying there must be faith that demonstrates itself in life, that real faith will produce real, genuine life change. So he's concerned about those who would profess a belief in Christ, but would, have, uh, would not have substantial evidence in their lives that they are Christians. And we certainly live in a culture where that is rampant. I mean, we, are, we live in the buckle of the Bible Belt, and so right here it's very common for people to have an understanding of who Jesus is, and yet live their lives without any um, 
true experience of having believed in him and having been saved and changed by him. James then goes on to write that, we, that faith without works is dead. So real faith will usher forth in genuine works. Um, works meaning acts of following Jesus Christ and obeying his scripture. So he doesn't say that you're saved by your works. That's not what he says. He doesn't say to be a Christian, do works. He doesn't say faith and works makes you a Christian. No, we're, we're saved by faith alone. We turn to Christ in repentance and we believe and we're saved by faith alone. But it is not a faith that is alone or that remains alone. It is a faith that if it takes root in our hearts, genuine conversion, then our lifestyle will change. It may be slow change. It may be at points incremental change. Uh, it could be very, you know, progressive in its nature. But over, over time, you will see a changed life. And so verse 26 of chapter 2, this is the immediate context. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So real faith leads to real changed life. And then here's our passage, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Faith without works is dead, and then immediately this is what God inspires James to write. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged by greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member. Yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring, uh, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, and we just read it even now, one reading, and we're aware of of our need. Lord, we're aware of where we fall short. And so we just pray today that you would bring clarity and conviction to us, and we pray that you would reveal to us the great Savior, Jesus Christ, We pray we'd come running to you this morning, and we pray that we'd find grace, pray that we'd find forgiveness, pray that we'd find power for change. We pray anyone in the room that has yet to meet you, that this passage would lead them to eternal life, Lord. We're asking that big of a prayer this morning, that someone might taste new life for the first time here today. Lord, I pray that you would grant me strength right now, and that you would grant me the ability to proclaim your word in faithfulness and in truth. For your glory, O God, in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, this is a passage that concerns one of the most important aspects of our Christian life, and that is our speech, our tongue, our words. It's really an important part of the Christian life. And actually, James didn't just out of the blue bring this up. He's already mentioned it. In chapter 1, verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So again, he's whittling away at this idea that it's okay just to say I believe, it's okay just to have faith in Christ sort of intellectually without really having my heart gripped and really receiving new birth and new life where Jesus is the Lord of my life. So he's hammering at that and he's saying, if anyone says I'm a religious person, you know, I believe in God, I go to church, I'm a religious person, but their tongue is unchanged, then then their religion is worthless. I mean, that is a strong word. Their religion is meaningless. It's a joke. It's a sham. It's worthless. It's inauthentic. It's fake. So if someone says I'm religious and I go to church and, and you know, I sing some songs, but they've never had the Spirit of God give them new birth, indwell them, and begin to change their speech, then their religion is worthless. So It's kind of surprising that our words would have such a prominent place in the Bible. We're going to look at some other scriptures in a little bit. But speech has a prominent place in the scripture, and it has a prominent place as serving as a test for the genuineness of our faith. And that's how it's brought up here in the book of James. Now, there's four aspects of the tongue he talks about. We're going to walk through each of these and then make some application at the end. We'll make some along the way as well, but... The first is he talks about the teaching tongue, then he's going to talk about the powerful tongue, then he's going to talk about the untamable tongue, and then he's going to talk about the double tongue. Teaching tongue, powerful tongue, untamable tongue, double tongue. We'll start with the teaching tongue. Now this verse, the first verse we read, 3-1, it seems to be like a floating verse almost. Not many of you should become teachers, right? So he starts with, faith apart from works is dead. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So he starts by saying, kind of scaring off or dissuading people to pursue teaching God's word. And I think there's two reasons he does that. One is, has to do with the theme of the overall book, and one has to do with this particular theme of chapter 3. He's not wanting to sort of scare off people that are called to teach God's word. He's not wanting to say, hey, nobody do it, or something like that. You know, I'm sort of tempted to shut the Bible, and we just all go home right now after reading that verse. But I think he means, I think he's uh, obviously dissuading people who would want to teach for the wrong motives. He's wanting to inspire the fear of God. So if someone wants to teach so as to have a platform to promote themselves or to promote false doctrine um, or to you know exercise some kind of influence that wouldn't glorify God, well, he would want to have a motive check here. Why would do you want to teach? Because you're going to be judged more strictly. I, I think the first reason is, is that we teachers are judged more strictly is sort of goes with the whole theme of the book. It's kind of a macro application. This book talks about being a hearer and a doer of the Word of God. So every Christian is called to read the Bible and to do what it says. But there is a greater level of accountability when one stands up and teaches others to obey the Scripture. Or, you know, teaches really in any context the Scripture. It could be children's ministry, youth ministry. Uh, But when you put a mic on it, and you broadcast the teaching of God, there is obviously a call for everyone to be a hearer and a doer. Teachers aren't called, you know, 
to obey more. Everybody's called to obey. But there's a greater accountability because they are public and they are called to practice what they preach. We are to practice what we preach. And so there's a higher level of accountability. I think the other reason that he raises here this issue of not many of you should be teachers because there's a stricter judgment. I think the other reason there's a stricter judgment is because of what this passage is all about. Look at verse 2. He says it's a stricter, that you'll be judged with greater strictness. Verse 2, we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. He's saying, look, everybody stumbles in their speech. Everybody stumbles. Everybody sins with their tongue. Everybody speaks inappropriate words. But if you sin, and you will, as a teacher, there's a greater ramification and a greater effect when it's Broadcast, I don't mean, you know, broadcast radio, television, internet or something. I mean, when it goes forth like this, when the Word of God is taught, there is an influence that is brought. So more words give more opportunities to stumble. So we all stumble in our speech. Teaching is a speech act, a speech vocation, a speech responsibility. So that means more words given to more people about the most profound uh, realities imaginable, the truth of Scripture. And so there is just greater possibility to do damage. Now, there's also greater possibility to do good in many ways. The Scripture talks all over about teaching and preaching being means of uh, strengthening, edifying, equipping the saints, guarding the church with truth, um, building up the truth, uh, building up the church in truth. So there's a lot of good that comes from teaching. That's not the emphasis here. Here is saying there's an accountability for teaching. See, those who teach, if they use critical words, unhelpfully critical, sinfully critical, it has an effect. Oftentimes a pulpit or, you know, uh, this is our pulpit, a music stand here, uh, often a pulpit is used as a place to critique others. It's very easy to set up straw men who aren't present and shoot them down with arguments and criticize others in the body of Christ. And that's often done in pulpits, and that is there's a strict accountability. If I meet Rob in the lobby and I criticize someone in the body of Christ, that's sinful and that has an effect. If I do this on this mic and we all hear it and it's podcast after the service, do you see the greater accountability and the greater effect that can have? Um, in that sort of thing. Judgmental, self-righteous speech. If I criticize those who don't know the Lord, if I stand up here, and that's is an easy thing to do, just mock the world's philosophies, mock the ideology of the world, and encourage us all to sort of look down on people that don't know Jesus and believe wrong things and practice wrong things. It's really easy to be smug. We know the truth and not acknowledge, what do we have that we have not received? I only know the truth because God has graciously opened my eyes. But it's easy to sit in judgment as if we're better than the world. And it's easy for me to do that and then to breed that attitude in the life of the church. So we can be critical of other Christians. We can be critical of the word. And when the teaching ministry of the church uses those kind of words, it has an effect on the whole church. You know, find a pulpit where the preacher is critical uh, and judgmental and self-righteous in his evaluation of others and takes shots at people all the time like that. And I'll show you a church that probably is pretty puffed up and arrogant because of that influence, because of how that people are being taught. Proud words, humor, 
Humor is a gift, but humor can have an effect. When humor is brought forth in teaching, and I've learned this lesson the hard way many times by offending people. Um, and it's my goal as I get older to offend fewer people, and I, I think that's kind of happening. But uh, when I f- we first planted, I offended in first planted first church where I preached regularly in California. I think I, my uh, offense to sermon ratio, it's kind of like completions versus interceptions. I think my offense per sermon ratio was higher there than it is right now, and I pray it'll keep lowering, shooting for zero. But, um, but nonetheless, humor can be used in a way that offends in the pulpit or in a way that's inappropriate or something like that. Humor can be a means of edifying an individual. An individual can edify them, build up and promote themselves, that sort of thing. So if you practice self-control, he says, you'll be like a perfect man with your speech. But we don't. We all stumble in many ways. So be careful about the teaching tongue because teachers are responsible for their words and their words can have great effect when the word of God is explained and applied but when other things slip in and, and when they emphasize other things, it can do damage and can hinder people in a lot of different ways. So that's the first thing. The second thing he talks about is the powerful tongue. So this teaching is all tied to the tongue. Look at uh, verse 3. He begins, if we put bits in the mouths of horses that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. He uses these two pictures, really three. But the first two where he says something big can affect something. I'm sorry, something small can affect something big. So he says we put a bit in the mouth of a horse and we can control the horse. Something small affects the direction of something big. And then he says the same is true with ships. We can take a rudder. And a rudder is relatively small, but a ship, even in the wind, can be turned, he says, by something very small, a rudder. So something small brings direction and guidance to something that is very big. <clears throat> that's, his influ- that's his emphasis here. So the tongue is a small little slab of flesh in your mouth. It's not very big compared to your whole body, but your tongue can affect your whole life. Your tongue sets the course for your life. Like a rudder in a ship, your tongue directs um, so much of our lives. It brings effect. It hinders others or it blesses others. It encourages others or it tears others down. It can be used for life or it can be used for death, the tongue. It can be used to promote Christ or to promote self. It can be used to to plot and plan good things, and it can be used to plot and plan destruction. But there's another point of the illustration that's often not easily seen. Something small affects something big, but there's a third player. It's not just the rudder in the ship. He says, um, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So there's rudder, there's ship, but the controller in it all is the will. The will of the pilot. He says the same thing about horses. He says, if we put, verse 3, bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us. So there's rider. There's pilot, rider, bit, horse, rudder, ship. And, And the truth is that the will, our will, our heart, directs our tongue, which directs our lives. Just as the will of the pilot directs the rudder, which directs the ship. And Jesus says in Luke 6, Luke 6.45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus says, what's in your heart will be expressed through your words, and those words will affect those around you. Those words will affect your 
life. And this is how this ties in to the entire book. This is how this um, fulfills the theme of the entire book. James is arguing that if you're really a Christian, you'll be a hearer and a doer of the word. You'll have faith that's demonstrated in works. And if you're really a Christian, you'll have a changed heart. And out of the abundance of your heart, certainly sin will come forth. We all sin. But out of, the, out of the abundance of your heart will also come a reflection of changed speech. See, the end of chapter 2, he says, faith without works is dead. If there's not new works, there's not a new heart that comes from genuine faith. I don't think it's a stretch to say this. Faith without words is dead as well. Because words are a work. Faith without words are dead. See, really what he's getting at ultimately in describing this picture is that a changed heart leads to changed speech. That little rudder affects the direction of the ship. And if the heart is changed, the will of the pilot is changed, the rudder will change, and the ship will be going in a different direction. Do you see that picture? So if your heart is changed, your speech will change, and your life will go in a different direction following Jesus Christ. And so honoring God with our words will be a priority. None of us do that flawlessly, of course. But that will be a goal. That will be a priority. How we express ourselves will come out in a way that will please the Lord and serve others. A changed heart leads to changed speech. Now, in our culture, we need to, I need to make an application of the tongue here. In James's culture, when they read this, when he just said, your tongue, I think everybody would instantly assume the immediate context uh, and the most obvious reality is that that's speech. And speech is what I'm doing right now. Saying words is speech. But if we back up a little bit, we would say that saying words is a reflection of what I'm thinking. What you hear is a reflection of what's coming out of my heart and coming out of my mind. It's the thoughts and intents of my heart being expressed through something you can hear. In our culture, we do that in other ways. See, when we think of speech and we think of communicating ideas, we have ways to do it that James didn't. And so I think we should broaden this application a little bit. If, if I say to you, I want to chat with you, uh, that could mean we're going to gather at the coffee table over there and go back and forth, or it could mean we're going to get our keyboards out and do this, right? That's a chat. In our culture, that is a chat. That's speech. That's communication. That's me giving you my ideas. I, I type something. You type back. See, social media is a way that we communicate what's in our hearts, where we say things. So if I want to say something to you, I've got a lot of options. I can speak to you directly. I can call you on the phone. Those are, uh, I mean, I, I can... Uh, Uh, yeah, I can call you on the phone or I can speak with you directly. Those are the most direct applications of this. But I can do other things as well. I can text you. I can text you and send you what I'm thinking and send you a message that reflects my heart. I can post my status on Facebook. And I can tell you what I'm thinking and what's going on in my life. You can respond to my status. I can send a tweet on Twitter and let you know what I'm thinking and give you a message that reflects my heart and reflects my life. I can blog. I can comment on your blog. We have a whole way of communicating now that's broader than what I'm doing right now. And it's, I think it's very similar, and I don't think it's a misuse of this chapter at all, to say what comes in our heart is expressed in how we communicate. Because words are not only given this way. Words are given through an email, 
through a letter. I mean, if you're a young person here, when you get home, ask your parents what a letter is. That's something, well, they'll explain the history. That's something that used to happen, but uh, people used to write letters, but they'll tell you what that is when you get home. So we have different ways of expressing ourselves. So what's small, a small thing, a word is a small thing, but it can direct a ship like a rudder. A posting is a small thing, but it can affect people. It can affect your life like a rudder. A text is a little thing. It seems smaller than a word. A te- I mean, it's 160 characters max. A tweet's 140 characters max. It's less. It's, it's a couple of sentences. But like that bit in a horse's mouth, a small thing can affect a big thing. And out of the heart, you tweet, you post, you blog, you chat, you speak, you call, you text. Out of your heart, that comes out. And that sets the course for your life. It affects other people. It affects you. And it seems so small. It's just words. It's just typed characters. It's just a small little thing. But James says small things accomplish great things. And a changed heart will be reflected in changed speech. Or let me back up and make it broader. A changed heart leads to changed communication. And I can say I'm a Christian, but if there's no change in my communication, I've got a problem. I've got a problem. Do I have faith that is genuine and has changed my life? Have I really experienced the saving power of the gospel? Has grace entered my life? If it has, grace will come out of my mouth and off my keyboard at some point in an increasingly consistent way. The tongue is small, but it boasts great things. Now, this is kind of a neutral illustration. The rudder, you know, directing the ship. That's pretty neutral. Words can be used for good or for ill. But the next illustration is not neutral. The next illustration shows the damage that can come from the tongue. Verse 5, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Here's the point. Something very small can lead to something very big that is destructive and damaging and devastating. Now, what he's probably talking about here, potentially, when he says a, 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 a forest is set ablaze, I mean, um, in these areas where the readers of this would, in the Middle East would have received this, I mean, it's not like the rainforests. Typically, they would have a, a forest fire. It could be small trees, brush, kind of thing that you'd see in a desert environment along a, along a mountain. But if you can imagine just looking at a mountain with all the brush on it, if you've ever seen the fires that take place in the West, California and other states, the, the, the raging fires, wildfires that take place, what he's basically saying is you would never be sitting out and looking at a, at a mountain with all the trees on the side of it, and all of a sudden you're looking at it, and the whole mountain just erupts in flames, barring the end of the world. If that happens, you know, and you're not saved, that is really the moment to get saved because it's all coming to an end. I mean, if a whole mountain catches on fire, that does not happen. You just don't have a combustible forest. You just don't look at a forest, and the whole thing's up in flames. What happens? A spark. A spark. And a small thing leads to a devastating large thing. Mrs. O'Leary, who lived in 1871, was a small person in, in, in world history. I mean, 
were, were the story I'm about to tell you, if it had not taken place, you, you would not have even known Mrs. O'Leary. She was small uh, in importance, so to speak. Um, and she was milking her cow at 9 o'clock in the evening on October 8th. Now, Mrs. O'Leary's cow is certainly not a, a world changer, you wouldn't think, until Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over the lantern that lit the area where said cow was being milked. And that lantern started a spark. And that spark spread and burned three and a half miles of the city of Chicago. That's how the Great Chicago Fire began. 17,000 buildings were destroyed. I mean, were it not for the week of tragedy we saw, um, you know, that, that's hard to get your head around. We, we've got a tragedy in Haiti that's even greater to get your head around because only 250 lives were lost in the Chicago fire, but that's still significant. 17,000 buildings burned because a cow kicks over a lantern. That seems so little. But behold how great the damage and devastation that can come from a small thing, spreading destruction. Listen, rumor can be harder to stop than a forest fire. Rumor can be harder to stop than a forest fire, and it can have devastating speech, devastating effects. Angry speech delivered to a child on a repeated basis can have a devastating effect of exasperating a child. Words from a parent of anger, harshness, and impatience repeatedly hypercritical to a child can, can seem like a small thing. It was just comments made, but it can affect a life. Regular criticism and a lack of gratitude has the power to tear down a wife, a husband or a wife, who's constantly critical, whether it's harsh ungratitude or a dripping faucet of nagging and complaining or whatever it is, can have significant effect. It seems small. It's just some words. But it can have a devastating effect. That's the point. Slander has the power to destroy a life. Gossip has the power to split a church or a family or a business and has many times. Lying has the power to lead to an entire life of hypocrisy. I mean, it starts with one lie, covering up a small thing, one little area of darkness, one little area of sin not brought to the light. And then that leads to another area of covering up and another private sin and not saying anything. And that leads to another. And it started with one little lie. One little failure to confess or expose oneself. And that leads to greater darkness, greater darkness, greater darkness, until finally you have a double life. And you have someone who's living an entire other life over here in darkness and an entire life here in the church. And how did it start? Well, it started with a heart of sin, and then it started with words, a heart of action, and then words lying to cover up. And then at the end of the day, you have a, someone living in total hypocrisy total darkness. It's just a spark, but it has power to lead to damage. Look look what he goes on to say, verse 6. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Now, if we read that, I mean, let's be honest. I'm not being disrespectful to the Word of God at all. I'm 
preaching it and pointing your attention to it. But if we be honest, I mean, we, we might look at that and say, is that hyperbole? I mean, is, does God really mean that? Is that overstatement? The tongue is a fire. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness. A world of unrighteousness in the tongue. I mean, that sounds strong. But that is the witness of Scripture. That is what the Bible teaches. There's a number of passages we could look at, but I just want to mention one to you. I'm not even going to read it. I'm going to retell it because it's a familiar story, and if you're not familiar, I'll familiarize you with it. It's, it's not hard to understand. But in many places in the Bible, our very sin nature is attached to speech in such a clear way. Here's one example. Isaiah chapter 6. You can read this later if you like. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is a prophet, and he has this powerful vision. He sees God in the temple, and the glory of God in the temple, and his train of his robe as the king fills the temple. And there's smoke in the temple because the holy God is in the temple. And there are flying creatures in the temple that are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the the ground of the temple is actually shaking. Because God is present, because God is holy, the very foundations of the building are jolting under the holiness of God. And Isaiah sees this. And Isaiah's a prophet. Isaiah's job as a prophet is to announce God's word to the people. And when Isaiah sees the holiness of God, he announces God's word to himself. And he judges it. He calls himself under judgment. He says, woe is me. Judgment on me. He actually says, I am coming undone. I am undone. He says, I'm coming apart at the seams. Judgment on me. I've seen the holy God. Judgment. Woe to me. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah encounters the very holiness of God, the blazing righteousness of God, the blinding light of the glory of the immaculate, pure, righteous, holy God, He says, I'm coming apart for my speech is sinful. It's the first thing he acknowledges. And it's true for us that when we see the holiness of God and when we think of our own heart and our own lives, we are convicted by our speech. Think about how many ways the tongue can be used to reflect sin in our heart and to do damage. Slanderous speech, cursing others, proud words, impatient speech, ungrateful speech. You know, I can go around just grumbling, complaining because things aren't going the way I want them to go, and I can just see it as, well, yeah, I don't know, bad mood, a little irritated. It's an ass- Truth be told, it's an assault on the sovereignty of God. It's saying, God, I know what I want and the way things should go, and you're not governing the universe and more specifically my life right now up to my standards. And so rather than words of worship, I'm going to issue words of complaint. Now, there's a place to, in purity, complain to the Lord about our situation and cry out for help, a lament psalm. But that's not what I'm talking about, and you know the difference. There's a difference when you're on your face and say, oh, Lord, help me. Why is this happening? And just, rah, 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 you know what I'm saying, where you're just complaining, grumbling, complaining, lack of gratitude. 
judgmental words, harsh words, lustful words, sinful humor. I love humor. Humor is a gift from God, but it can be abused to tell sexual jokes or make humorous uh, innuendo about immorality or racial jokes or sexist jokes or jokes that are just used to, to mock and belittle others. Not in good-hearted fun. There's a place to have fun with friends. But, but things that go beyond that, that are aimed at mocking and hurting others to make oneself look better. Hateful speech. Lying speech. Covetous speech. If not rank blasphemous speech, speech that at least demeans our view of the glory of God, talking about God in flippant ways. I mean, a world of unrighteousness lies in the tongue. And and if that's not bad enough, the passage gets stronger. Verse 7, he talks about the untamable tongue. Every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. What he's saying is man has the ability to tame animals. Animals can be tamed. Animals can be trained in amazing ways. Think about dogs, how they're trained. Think about how service dogs help needy people uh, that have just been trained to do amazing things. I saw last week, I just couldn't believe this, but instead of dogs for blind people, seeing eye dogs, there were seeing eye miniature ponies. So they're training miniature ponies to help the blind, which is great, but really looked kind of different. You know, this miniature pony going along and kept thinking, worried, I hope no kid tries to jump on it or something, you know, like it's a ride. But miniature ponies can be trained. A horse can be trained to care and help and service and, and change the life of a suffering person like a blind person. He says that we can train, that we can tame, that we can control sea creatures. I, mean, I, used, to live in San, I used to live in San Diego and, and went to uh, SeaWorld. You ever been to SeaWorld? Man can take a whale, name him Shamu, and do some signal, and a whale will jump up and, and fall back down on command. Somebody can do a whistle, and a dolphin comes by, and you get on the dolphin and go for a ride on the dolphin. We can do dolphin riding. We can make Shamu jump around and splash the audience at our desire and our control, but we cannot tame our tongue. Seeing eye ponies, oh, we can do that. (laughs) Who thought? Amazing. But we cannot tame our tongue. And here's the dilemma. We must tame our tongue but we can't tame our tongue. We must tame our tongue, but we can't tame our tongue. It's a world of unrighteousness. It is on fire. It is, he says in verse 6, set on fire by hell. No human being can tame the tongue, verse 8. That dilemma, my friends, leads us to Christ. That dilemma leads us to the gospel. We cannot tame our tongue, but we must tame our tongue. See, the reason we have a tongue and we speech, speak and we communicate and we type and the reason we can communicate, we use the QWERTY keypad, whatever, to communicate. The reason we do that is because we are created in the image of God. God is a speaking God. 
And Hebrews 1 says, In the past He has spoken to us through the prophets, but now He has spoken to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus comes speaking to reveal who God the Father is. He's God Himself. The Son is God. He comes revealing who God is. And not only does he speak about God, he is actually the Word of God. James, I'm sorry, John 1 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the very Word of God. Jesus is the very speech of God. Jesus embodies the very truth, the reality, the person of God. We've seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus comes and he speaks grace and truth. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus never had an idle word. The scripture says we'll be judged for all our idle words. Jesus never had an idle word. Jesus never had a sinfully angry word. Jesus never gossiped behind someone's back. Jesus never flattered anyone for selfish purposes. Jesus Jesus never spoke critically based on sinfulness. When he spoke critically, it was to redeem and had the good of the hearer in mind and perfect love. Jesus never grumbled. Jesus never complained. Instead, he used all his words for life. He spoke love. He spoke truth. He spoke caring warning. He spoke loving rebuke. He spoke words of compassion. He spoke words of mercy. Because he is the word, and he spoke the very word of God, and he revealed the word to us. And though he spoke perfectly, he was crucified. And he died for those who use their speech sinfully. He died in the place of those whose tongues are a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness, not Jesus's. But he died, the tongue of righteousness suffered and died for the tongues of unrighteousness. And here's what's amazing about this. Not only did he die to forgive our sins, but he died to credit to us his speech. That's just amazing. He died to forgive our sins. Same thing happened to Isaiah. Isaiah says, woe is me, and, and, a, flaming, and a creature gets a flaming coal off the altar with tongs and touches Isaiah's lips and said, your sins are atoned for. God forgave Isaiah's speech. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He dies to forgive our speech, but he goes beyond that. He actually credits us. The Scripture teaches that the righteousness of Christ is credited to us. And oftentimes we think of that generally. Like Christ's righteousness credited to me, so God relates to me. I'm justified. God relates to me on the basis of Christ's obedience. That's all true. But if we want to be more specific, we could say that Christ's words are credited to us. So me, the liar, the grumbler, the complainer, the one who speaks angrily and harshly and critically and judgmentally and self-righteously, the one who's gossiped, is credited with the speech of love and compassion and perfect truth and honesty and care. That speech is credited to my record so that God relates to me on the basis of what Christ has done for me. That is amazing. That we with dirty lips with filthy mouths, with angry, hateful words, come in here forgiven and can sing the praises of God. We can say, we love you, Jesus. We want to follow you. We can speak words of life because our words have been forgiven. He's granted us new words. Here's the other truth of the gospel, though. It not only forgives our messes. The gospel's not just about 
forgiving our past sins. The gospel is also about changing us, forgiving us, but then also granting us power for change. That's called sanctification. Do you know the passage we just read doesn't say that it's impossible to tame the tongue? The passage we just read, verse 8 says, says, no human being can tame the tongue. But brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has given his life and has been resurrected to tame your tongue. Jesus Christ, the Holy One, has come to bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit is to produce you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Those things are to grow in us and to come out of our mouths. Jesus has suffered and died, not just so all of your sins can be washed away, but so that you could speak new words and that your heart could be changed, and that could be issuing forth in words of praise to God and words of service to others. That happens to Isaiah. He sees his sin. His sins are atoned for. And then God says, who can I send to go for me and represent me and speak my word? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. The one who is in a a puddle. I'm melting. I mean, he's in a puddle over here under the holiness of God. He is now going forth. Here I am, send me, forgiven to represent God and speak the words of God to people. That's redemption. That's a wonderful paradigm for how we relate. We see the holiness of God. We recognize there's a world of wickedness in our sin. We recognize, oh, what damage I've done by saying this little thing, how it had an effect on someone else, how it misrepresented Christ, how it harmed others, how it grieved the Holy Spirit that I went on and on with my loose lips but I can receive forgiveness and I can receive hope for change and the Spirit of God can empower me to change my words and to speak in a different way so that there's words of life that come forth. See, he uses this, the last thing he talks about is this situation of the double tongue. You know, verses 9 through 12, he is talking about how can the same mouth curse God and, I'm sorry, how can the same mouth bless God? Sorry about that. How can the same mouth bless God and curse others? These things aren't not to be. You're speaking two ways. Can a fig tree bear olives? Okay, if your heart is a fig tree, no olives are coming out of your mouth. If you're an unbeliever, gracious, godly, uh, gospel words are not coming out of your mouth. If you are a believer, gracious words will come out of your mouth. If grace has grabbed your heart, grace will grab your tongue, and grace will affect your life. A changed words reflect a changed heart. That's what this whole thing is talking about. And if the Spirit of God lives in you, He will bear fruit through you. A salt, water, a salt pond cannot yield fresh water, but a fresh water pond can. And the Spirit of God living in you will, will flow out with fresh water. So there is hope. There is hope that, of course, no one is freed from the nature of being double-tongued until Jesus comes. No one is only going to speak words of life and blessing. But we can increasingly, increasingly speak more words that honor God and reflect a changed heart and less words that defy God. That's sanctification. Conform to the image of Christ. If I'm conformed to the image of Christ, my words... My postings, my status, my whatever, my, my, my online chatting, my texting, it, those are going to more reflect the person and the character of Jesus Christ in my life. 
And this could be an overwhelming passage, I understand, but I, I, I pray that we go away aware of the difficulty of controlling our tongue. No, more than that. Aware of the impossibility of controlling our tongue, but aware that, that Jesus Christ has bought us with a price and is changing us for his glory. And he is in the very business of taming the tongue. He's the redeemer. He's the sanctifier. And that includes our speech. There's forgiveness. There's hope for change. Here's a few things to walk out with for some immediate application. I I don't think we want to hear this message and study a book about being hearers and doers and walk out of here as hearers only. It's always tragic to not apply the Scripture. It's really tragic in the book of James, which is all about applying the Scripture. Um, The first place we can start is we can make amends. Well, let me back up. We can go to the Lord as Isaiah did and said, I am a man or a woman of unclean lips. Please forgive me specifically for my anger, angry speech, my lying speech, my deceptive speech, my impatient speech, my gossip, my hate, hatred, whatever it is, my judgment, judgmentalness. So we ask forgiveness from the Lord. And then if we have used our, the gift of words, uh, mainly through our lips, but also through our typing, you know what I mean with all that. If we have used that in an inappropriate way, then we should go back to the person we've sinned against and make that right. You know, would you forgive me for my anger and what I said to you? Would you forgive me for gossiping about you? Would you forgive me for um, being ungrateful and just complaining to you when I should have been thanking you? We can go and receive forgiveness. That is, we can use our words. Yes, you can use your words to do damage, but yes, you can use your words for reconciliation. That's the power of words. The same words that hinder can be the same word, the same mouth that brings forth a heart of humility and repentance. So we can go back and, and repent. So that's the first thing. If there's someone today you need to get right with, with your speech, don't wait. Do it today. Do it today. And you don't have to spend the rest of the week trying to drum something up. If there's something there, the Holy Spirit will convict you and bring it to mind. It's the words, the situation. For some of us, it's the argument we had on the way to church today. We just don't really have to go that far back. You know, oh, I wonder what I said back in seventh grade. Hey, just think to the car ride here this morning, okay? Let's go cleaning that up. And if God wants to take you to seventh grade, he'll do that. But let's, let's worry about right now. What's current? What's, what, where's their relational breach in your life? And repair that by the grace of God or seek to repair that and ask for forgiveness. Secondly, we can um, invite someone else in to help us. Because often we're not aware of how our words come out. I have a lot of blind spots in my life. I, I guess, honestly, I have more blind spots than I know. That's the nature of a blind spot, right? So I guess if I know about it, it's not a blind spot. But one blind spot that is blind, but I know it's there, is um, my words. And my wife, Ginger, helps me. She's been very helpful with this, uh, especially with my words with the kids, where she can point out to me, and say, okay, the way you said that, here's how it came across, or here's how they heard it, or here's why the children or that child reacted that way, because this is how it sounded to me. And I, So she can reflect back to me what I can't really hear, or what I'm not aware of, or maybe what I don't want to see. Or you use too many words, as the case often is. should have stopped way back there. You made the point. Didn't need to repeat the point multiple times, because that didn't help. Those weren't words of service. That's words as a hammer. Let the Lord do his work. Just say what needs to be said and trust the Lord. So she's been very helpful to me. Or, you, you know, so 
Go to someone who knows you and ask them what their observations about your speech are. If you're married, that person should be your spouse first and foremost. What do you think about my speech? You know, where am I using words in an inappropriate way? And where am I not using words where I should be? Maybe I'm failing to be grateful. Maybe I'm failing to be affectionate and tender with my words. Maybe I'm failing to be uh, serving. Maybe I'm failing to encourage with the Scripture and uh, with my own uh, love for my spouse. It could be anything. Maybe you're failing to demonstrate respect to your husband through your speech. Maybe you're failing to love your wife as Christ loved the church through words. I mean, that's really vague. It can, well, it's not, but it can be. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Well, that's expressed through action, but also through our words. Maybe you're not married. You could ask a friend or someone in your care group, hey, what, do you have any thoughts about my speech? Have you noticed any speech patterns in my life that you would like to bring to my attention? Speak to me about my speech. So that can be very, very helpful to know where do we need help. And lastly, don't just concentrate on what to avoid, but seek to ask God to work in your heart to help you use your words in a positive way. So it's not just avoiding things. Life isn't just about, let's just not kick over the lantern because that'll start the Chicago fire. It's not just avoiding, but it's using our speech in a positive way. Lord, help me use words, help my heart change so that my words can move the rudder so that the ship of my life can be moving a different direction change the course of my life, change my relationships, bridge where there's breaches in relationships, help my marriage, help my family, help my friendships, help my, me in my work environment, in my neighborhood, with my extended family. Lord, help me, to, help me to witness for your glory with my words. Help me to speak of you in a compelling way and help me to love others with my words. It's not about avoiding forest fires. It's about planting trees. It's not just ensuring the forest doesn't burn. It's building a forest for the glory of God. It's not just hoping the ship never gets off course. It's asking God to change our heart and to control our lives and to turn, turn the ship for His glory. It's about issuing forth fresh water. It's about, to use His example, it's fruit coming from our heart and for our, from our lives. It's the fruit of the Spirit on display from our thoughts, our actions, and our words. And that is possible because Jesus Christ died to make it possible. He is the great tamer of the tongue. And while none of us have consented completely yet, we will one day, when the only words out of our mouths in glory will be words of life, words of adoration, words mirroring and reflecting the glory of Jesus Christ. Come quickly. May that day come quickly. But in the meantime, have hope. Repent where necessary. But have hope that God wants to use your speech and change your speech for his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the fact that you are the word, the ultimate word that speaks truth and speaks life. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you that though our words have failed to meet the standards of your holiness, that your blood forgives us today. And we thank you for the cleansing of, uh, of your presence and the Holy Spirit's power to change us. We pray that you would change our hearts where necessary change our words. Lord, I pray throughout this room that you would mend relationships. Lord, there may be broken relationships that many in this room, most, if not all of us have. And we pray that we would use our words for your glory and that you would use those words to bring mending and healing and reunifying. So God, please do that for us in in this church. Lord, guard us as a church 
from the destructive wildfires of hatred and judgmentalism and gossip, slander. Protect our unity for your glory and uh, repair where there is damage. And Lord, empower us to change the way we speak. Lord, may Grace Church, may we live the name that we have. May we be those who speak words of grace, for we have tasted the grace of God and are living in the grace of God. Change us in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.